0: head over to facebook.com slash gunshowpodcast, look for the learn more button, click that, and it will take you to iTunes where you can listen to and subscribe to our show, as well as checking us out on stitcher.com. And as always, head over to defenderoutdoors.com for all of your shooting and hunting needs. And if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and you need a place to shoot, check out defenderoutdoorsshootingcenter.com. Everyone, we would like to welcome you all back to the Gun Show Podcast. I have on the phone with me Tom Russell. How are you doing today, Tom?
1: Oh, I'm doing great, Martin. Thank you for having me on.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely, Tom. Can you give us a little background about who you are and what you do?
1: I'm Tom Russell. I own the American Firearms Academy. And uh, you can check us out at uh, AmericanFirearmsAcademy.com. I'm a Master Firearms Instructor. I received that certification from Colonel Jeff Cooper of Gunsight Fame in 2000 and uh, have been involved in firearms instruction since 1997. My background, I, I'm a former Marine. I was in way back when nothing was happening, so uh, <laughs> no war stories there. And I've been a minister for over 30 years, but have always been deeply, deeply interested in firearms and their use in hunting and uh, in combat and had uh, always longed to meet Colonel Cooper. In 1992 or 1993, I had learned that he had sold gunfight. I concluded that, okay, apparently, yeah, I'm never going to get to train under Colonel Cooper. You know, he just, he just sold the ranch. And uh, then I learned that he was teaching a few classes out at the NRA Whittington Center, just outside of Raton, New Mexico. I just jumped on it. I, I knew it was now or never. And I had been riding with him, communicating a little bit, as mentioned, you know, I appreciated him all my life. Uh-huh. longed to meet him. And so I created the opportunity to take a rifle class from him in 1995. He and I hit it off wonderfully. He was 75 years old at the time. And I went back the next year and to the NRA Whittington Center. Participated in the 1996 uh, General, New Mexico General Rifle Match and I won it. Uh, won a beautiful gold ring that he awarded to those who scored highest using, you know, a lightweight scout type rifle. That match was immediately followed the next week by a five and a half day pistol class and uh, I did very well there. Got my expert rating and then in '97 I began instructing with him. I taught with him out at gunsight in two thousand uh, and received my masters certification from him at that time.
0: Not everyone is going to know who Colonel Jeff Cooper is, so can you go into who he is a little bit?
1: i I certainly will and and realize uh, you know that is the reality, and it's regrettable because uh, so many of us benefit uh, from his influence to such a tremendous degree. Colonel Jeff Cooper is the author of The Modern Technique of the Pistol. He, is, he was a World War II Marine, continued serving with the Marine Corps on loan to the OSS during the Korean War. He retired as a lieutenant colonel in 56, I believe, or 57, and uh, retired to uh, Bear Valley, California, and very quickly began organizing shooting matches with the handgun. And his, his intention was to identify through that competition the most effective use of a handgun in a defensive situation. And uh, some tremendous uh, individuals were involved in that with him, uh, very notable individuals such as uh, Jack Weaver, who developed the Weaver stance, uh, the two-handed stance that, generally speaking, everybody uses today. I think it's important to understand some refer to this stance as the isosceles, modern isosceles, and so on. And really, I think that we need to give credit where credit is due, uh, as Colonel Cooper did. And that was to Jack Weaver. And All of these are simple modifications of the Weaver stance and uh, just driving and not negating any modern contributions, uh, as I believe that everyone is still driving to identify, uh, you know, the most efficient way for them to run a handgun. The colonel left California in the early 70s and uh, built a ranch outside of Paulden, Arizona, and put in ranges, and thus we had the first serious firearms instruction school, which was Gunsight, and taught thousands. And, of course, Gunsight still exists today. The uh, colonel continued to work with the pistol, uh, the shotgun, the carbine, and the rifle, which is what I teach today, uh, all four. And uh, he uh, really... He really never retired, even though his, his health began to fail, uh, even in the early 90s. Uh, he continued to you know work the range uh, right on up through 2000, about 2003, 2004 was when he taught his last class, and we lost him in 2006. It, it's, it is important to appreciate the influence. The colonel realized back in the 60s and 70s that what we needed in a defensive handgun or uh, sights that you could see, a trigger that was usable that you could use without in unduly disturbing the sight picture you had achieved, and utter reliability. And Martin, when I first got into this, uh, you know, handgun, no handgun, generally speaking, was available out of the box. It was just good to go. Some of the Smith and Wesson revolvers uh, were were really nice. Ruger and Colt also, of course, produced nice revolvers, but no same automatics Right. Everything, uh, everything needed. <laughs> and and A little refinement. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> when Colonel Jeff Cooper was in the military, if anybody goes back and watches those old training videos, even up through the Korean War, because a lot of the training that was still offered to the troops during the Korean War was the same training that was offered to them during World War II. And we know that there's a lot of shoot from the hip, kind of these almost uh, fencing type Handgun holds as well. So did mm-hmm. did he ever talk about any of that and how that played a role and why he was so driven to redefine our um, our industry? So, even though he may not have known he was doing it.
1: Well, he he came to realize. Uh, I mean, even if, even up to the present day, you will have some who will argue that uh, in a pistol fight, we we shouldn't or can't uh, use our sites because the action is just too close range and too dynamic. And he realized that that simply wasn't the case. And I think some of that was based on his experience in World War II. And also the fact that he was always looking for the better way. If anything uh, would, uh, you know, if any st- statement would uh, describe Colonel Cooper, it was, he was always in search of the better way mm-hmm. and constantly worked to remain open-minded. He didn't like innovation for the sake of innovation, uh, but if it led to greater functionality or efficiency, he was all for it. And so by the end of World War II, he realized that just as it it was important to use the sights on your M1 Garand, uh, regardless of the distances involved, generally speaking, the same was true concerning the pistol. In fact, following World War II, he was stationed at Quantico, which is right next to the FBI Academy, of course. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, in competition with the uh, the FBI, they complained to him that he wasn't competing fairly because he was using his sights. Is, <laughs> stuff, which, yeah. uh, well, if they're there, why not use them? And the uh, the sights on our old government model 1911 uh, were minuscule, difficult to pick up quickly, and he recognized that problem very quickly.
0: Yeah, they were and, a uh, flat base with no markings and very short. Right. That was the old That's GI right. style. They're
1: very low. Pro- yes. Very low profile. If you're not going to use them, of course, it doesn't really matter.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: But if you are going to use them, you want to be able to pick them up quickly. And so it, it, it was through his constantly promoting what he identified as just necessities on a handgun that you began to see really usable sights appearing on our semi-automatic pistols. And culminating today in very, very nice sights, the fiber optic, which I don't believe that he was aware of prior to his passing, provide us with a great deal of precision. And at the same time, they are so quick to pick up, uh, providing for the flash sight picture that he felt was essential in the defensive use of the pistol. His, his influence just permeates the firearms industry. Uh, and we're also much better off. I I tell people all the time, Martin, that we now live in the golden age of defensive pistols. There are so many good guns that are practically ready to go out of the box. I mean, they're reliable. They've got decent triggers. They've got decent sights. It's almost if if a change needs to be be made, it's, it's really a matter of preference and not necessity.
0: Right, yeah you really have to to um not necessarily get the cheapest gun to now kind of run into issues. You can really run into issues with any gun, even a two thousand three thousand dollar gun as I've seen personally with some people's concealed carries uh but yeah. in in general. You know, I'm not having to go rework any of my guns. I have a few of my grandfather's old guns and it's, what's really interesting about it is everything on that gun has been modified or changed was done by him. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that kind of speaks to a craftsmanship and a can do and I will do attitude that generation had different than what we see today. I think, you know, it's it's like, I'll just go take it to get it stippled somewhere else instead of sitting down and, and learning how to do it yourself. And, I, hey, trust me, I haven't stippled any of my guns because I don't want to mess them up.
1: Uh, well, and I, I think that's part of it uh, is that uh, we've got so many people out there who can do such a good job. Uh, I don't, you know, my polymer frame guns, I don't stipple them either. Uh, I've got a friend who uh, he doesn't actually stipple. He has a texturing process. Uh, that he utilizes, and he's a unique combination of artist-engineer. And he just does a beautiful job, for instance, of recontouring a Glock frame uh, mm-hmm. and providing this, this check-string process. If I try to do it, uh, listen, I can I can run these guns, and I can teach people how to shoot them um, and uh, do just a, you know, that's that's my forte. Uh, but I'm telling you that if I attempted to stipple it, it would look like I I did it did over and opened fire with a railroad spike. It would, it would just look terrible. Like a so, chocolate chip cookie uh, melting
0: out of the oven, essentially.
1: <laughs> no, that, that's exactly what it would look like.
0: Yeah, that's what I well, always—that's uh, what I'm always afraid of when I when I do pick up a, a stippling gun. And you know, I, I've tried to do stippling before, and it is very labor intensive, time consuming, and you have to be very consistent and constant in every one of your movements. And the one thing that I learned um, while trying to to stipple some things, and I, I just had stuff that was for fun, like extra grips, extra handguards, whatever it was. Um, what I learned was that there are so many different types of plastics that you have to adjust the heat on your gun for those different types of plastics. So if you're trying to do maybe even one portion of the gun, you have to heat the gun up so that you can get that same texture through that other portion of the gun. Because uh, too hot, you'll melt right through it. Not hot enough, and you don't really create the um, the aggressive you know stippling that you're wanting and then you have to go back and try to redo it. But we've right. all seen the horror stories on on um you know google or uh ar15.com or any of those places we we see all of the horror stories of don't try to stipple your guns at home. So it is you you're, you're wow. right it is a it's a mastery it's a refinement it is a craft and an art that that many people spend hours and hours on and i think it's um it's not quite as as uh intense as an engraver of course but it's it's kind of the same thing you're sitting there for hours working on small portions of the gun
1: Yes it, it, that's true and and also it I think it, it's what does a person prefer um you know what will what will satisfy their need and the desire there I mean I've seen some stippling jobs done by some real deal, very serious guys who had seen a lot of action. And, uh, you know, uh, again, it looked like a chocolate chip cookie. uh, (laughs) Right. You know what? You know, these guys were extremely squared away and they were perfectly content with that extremely rough uh, texturing. Uh, Whereas, you know, others, either the preference just doesn't feel as good in the hand or aesthetics they want somebody to do a really nice stippling job on the gun i think that's one of the great things about polymer uh, is it's obviously it's very durable It's it's well proven if this i mean very uh, well we're getting ready to uh, the us army just adopted a polymer handgun the seals are using the glock 19 so obviously uh, these things have been tested to an incredible degree and not found wanting but it's a, a substance that lends itself To anyone being able to experiment with it without investing in some really high end tools and how to develop it on the go. Yeah, you can Uh, just buy a a heat gun, essentially. I'm sorry?
0: You just buy a heat gun. That's all that it is. It's just a heat gun with a different um, tool at the end. I'm sorry, a soldering iron.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I carry steel guns and I carry, you know, polymer guns and I'm perfectly comfortable. Either one, obviously, if I'm wanting, uh, you know, the really high end aesthetics, uh, typically I'm going to prefer a steel gun. Typically, it's going to be, you know, really nicely finished 1911. I I don't have any serious bias one way or another. They're all good. Uh, if, if If you've got a gun out there that's really seriously making it in a marketplace today with all the competition that's present, you're looking at a solid piece. We all understand, uh, the first polymer guns that I'm aware of, and they were by uh, H&K, but, of course, they, uh Glock took the world by storm. When they introduced it over here in about 1987, everybody was wondering, what in the world is that? You know, is, this is plastic, you know, can this work? I remember some of Colonel Cooper's comments in uh, his Cooper's commentary regarding the Glock 17, and uh, he found it to be an interesting gun. He thought it had a decent trigger, uh, Is a nine millimeter, so you perceive that as a subcaliber. But you know, everything that we're, we're u- so many of the guns that we're using today really are standing on, uh, you know, the Glock development, and in, in many ways uh, they've superseded it. Uh, you know, numerous uh, companies have superseded it that just, at, at this point. But uh, it's it's important to remember it all started with Glock. Of course, Glock still has the lion's share of the market. Uh, I think that will change unless they really, really start introducing some of these cutting-edge refinements, like a better trigger uh, we're seeing on water PPQs and mm-hmm. CZ-T10 compacts and so on. Um, they use those silly; They typically come with those silly plastic sites, and they're dovetail fillers. But perhaps one of the reasons they're doing that is because they realize that sites are such a personal preference issue that uh, people are going to change them out anyway.
0: Right, so, right. So. You're just going to replace it with something new. So, why spend yeah. all the you know why not cut the cut the dollars and and save the pennies here and there versus mm-hmm. throwing
1: on some more expensive sites absolutely i we see Glock of course is more popular than it's ever been I mean the seals just adopted it now I think i i, I it's doubtful I haven't seen the particular model that they're using uh, other than the fact that it's Glock nineteen I'm talking about what modifications they may be using <clears> or <throat> like trigger uh, bars. Those important.
0: those are really, really a big change for Glock guys. And uh, I think Wolf um, Springs
1: does a couple of modifications for them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important. These gun companies not become content with their laurels. They've got to, I mean, they've got to stay aggressive and not just in marketing, but keeping up with the preferences of the market or they end up making the same fatal mistake that, for instance, uh, tragic mistakes like Colt made. Uh, Colt allowed so many other companies just to take the 1911 market away and then has played catch-up and and are producing great guns today. They're producing great guns. But nevertheless, that that lethargy really costs them. I can see the same thing happening to Glock uh, if they're not careful this, uh, I haven't been, I've just seen the reviews on this uh, CZP10C. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't been able to get my hands on one to, to check the trigger and everything. But boy, you're seeing a, uh, a pistol that's under, you know, well under the cost of a Glock. With better sights, it sets as low in the hand as a Glock as far as the bore line uh, it has a trigger that some are describing as good as the Walter PPQ, and of course CZ quality is just top notch. So it's going to be an iron tough gun, and that kind of uh, that kind of product at that price point could could really could really start sweeping other companies.
0: That's what we were talking about on the last show with Andrew was the fact that the industry has kind of just. Um, been sitting on their hands and producing as much as possible versus really worrying about anything being innovative. Yes. Anyone really starts doing that, like you're saying, with Glock sitting there and everybody else coming out with these new changed-up polymer frame pistols, I, I think you're right. We could see some major changes coming down the pipeline. But I think that Glock has such a following, and one of the things that I see in this industry is that when someone buys a 1911? 1911s are the best. When someone buys a Glock, Glock is the best. When someone buys a Beretta, Breda is the best. And <clears throat> I don't really think that's the best way to to look at it. Let's just say you're you're working at a gun store, and a man comes in with his wife, and he's sitting there telling her, "No, this is the only gun you can get because this is the only gun that works." Well, we all know that. Whoever is coming in to shoot, whether it's a male or female, and they're using it for defensive carry or just home protection, they need to be buying the gun that they feel most comfortable with, not the gun that their their spouse or their friend is telling them to buy.
1: Well, that's true. And and, and let me say, now this is, this is coming from a uh, firearms instructor with really at this point a vast amount of experience. So often, um, I'd like to take that even a step further. So often, I've had people come, many times, kind uh, of take a class with me, and they purchase the gun that felt good to them in the gun store. And, you know, that, that feel-good feeling is going to be influenced by a number of things, how it feels in the hand, it's lightweight, they can retract the slide, the price point, and so on. Sometimes they get out to the range, and we begin working with that pistol. And, uh, you know, Martin, and I start, you know, these classes off very basically this is how you stand this is how you hold the gun this is how hard you hold it this is how you uh, sight the pistol this is how you properly manipulate the trigger and by the time we're through with that they're looking at that pistol in their hand that felt so good in the gunster going oh my goodness i i, I need to go find something else and uh that's just es- so that's especially true If I then, let's say they're having a difficulty with that particular model they're using, and I want to encourage their learning curve, I want to give them as much as I can while I've got them out there on the range, I put uh, a custom Glock 19 in their hand, or a 1911, or a Walder PPQ, and all of a sudden they start controlling the pistol more effectively, they start hitting uh, more effectively, the trigger is so much easier to utilize and so what they've learned is that what kind of felt good in the gun store, what they thought was really kind of a good-looking pistol, mm-hmm. uh, they, they've learned it. Uh, wow, there's there's something more effective. And uh, so my my recommendation is that people get some good uh, training in before they make a decision on what pistol they want. They'll be you know they'll be purchasing from. Um, a much greater level of education and knowledge and experience.
0: So like go to the ranges that allow you to rent the gun, pick up the gun, rent it, you know, put a few rounds well, through even, it, something eh, like that, or
1: even then they, they need the guidance. They need guidance from someone who really knows what they're doing. Uh, uh, when they, when they come out and they take, for instance, they come out and take a one day or a two day class with me, mm-hmm. uh, now they know how to, you know, lock onto the pistol, how firmly to hold it. You know, you need to hold them quite a bit more firmly than a lot of people, you know, intuitively conclude. And uh, uh, they know what constitutes a good trigger and why a good trigger uh, is is so important. Uh, you know, they come to understand, uh, oh, wow, fiber optic sight is so much easier to pick up uh, quickly when you're transitioning from one target to another. And right. So on. And they won't pick that up, uh, you know, simply trying out different guns, because uh, it's kind of like me. If you put me in uh, multiple Formula One race cars, I I wouldn't have a clue (laughs) (laughs) at at the end of an hour, you know, sitting in these different cars and maybe putting around the track a little bit, really, which constituted a good race car and which one didn't, uh, unless I've got somebody there telling me, you know, what the advantages are from, you know, who is truly experienced in teaching others. So uh, I'm not trying to beat my own drum at all. That's not my intention. It's just that I like to see people make a really informed decision because this is uh, such an important area. We're talking about the instrument that you're going to have in your hand when you're fighting for your life. And you want it to be something that is is simple to use, that's effective, uh, that you're totally comfortable with, that you're skillful with in the use of it, and so on. Training is is so important. Uh, The colonel would say that, you know, having a handgun and not knowing how to use it is the same as having a piano sitting in the corner and having no clue, you know, which keys Mm -hmm. to hit. It's a nice ornamentation, but it's not much more than that.
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about your your training and what you do offer.
1: Sure. I teach, and, and this is all related, you know, the defensive use of firearms. I teach the uh, the pistol, the rifle, shotgun, and the carbine. You know, I, I've got my own range. It's a few minutes east of Sherman, Texas, which is just north of Dallas. Although, okay. uh, you know, like the old gunfighter I have gun will travel, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I do that ever so often. I teach defensive pistol, and rifle is typically a five to five-and-a-half-day general rifle class. Shotgun is a bit different. In fact, we just had a one-day home defense shotgun class yesterday out on my range, and uh, it went very well. And the reason shotgun is typically a one-day class is because the shotgun is typically a close-range weapon, very simple to use, and I can go into detail on why, and simple to operate if you're using a shotgun in a fight, usually the fight's over pretty quick, so right. uh, it, does, it doesn't, it does unlike some other firearms like the pistol, the pistol is much more difficult to use than the long guns, and so uh, requires more training, and it requires to understand how to use it or learn to use it, and it really uh, requires more training to maintain that proficiency.
0: And how often do you offer these classes, or do you have a set schedule, can they find that on your website, or how does that work?
1: They can, Martin. Uh, My website is AmericanFirearmsAcademy.com. I'll usually have a two-day pistol class the last weekend of each month. I'll have a uh, CHL or uh, concealed handgun licensing license to carry class on the second Saturday of each month. And then I have students in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who are really uh, desirous of maintaining the skills that they develop in our training. And so I have a continuous training program that is the first and third Saturdays of each month from 9 to 11. And so from 9 to 11, we're pursuing a a pistol training. I'm running them through various basic and advanced drills at ranges from 3 yards to 100. And that surprises some people when we talk about, you know, hundred hitting with a pistol at 100 yards. But if your pistol is set up properly and you are properly trained and tuned up, uh, that's not a difficult shot. Following... Uh, that two hours of training, we're talking about implementing one session per month uh, with the shotgun, and mm-hmm. maybe the next month, those who have taken carbine class will spend an extra hour out there running the carbine just to keep everybody tuned up.
0: Right. So you kind of you kind of like to make sure you cover your bases from your your handguns to your long guns. Uh, having one instructor that teaches you that from the start to finish is kind of beneficial in multiple ways. You're hearing the same person tell you using the same terminology, because if you're going to multiple different people, there's a high chance you're going to get that changed on you. So there are benefits to having a master firearms instructor. Now, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but that is something that was assigned to you by Colonel Jeff Cooper. So what does master firearms instructor actually mean?
1: Okay, uh, according to the colonel's definition, it, it was someone who could provide the full course of instruction and do so in an effective uh, manner with a, with a command presence, uh, because, of course, that's what he exuded. And uh, he didn't appoint uh, very many. And uh, to my knowledge, there are only two of us right now that are still active uh, who were actually certified by Colonel Cooper. Uh, but uh, and, and, and folks need to understand uh, that, that when I say this, I, you know, Jeff Cooper certified me as a master instructor. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Uh, what a blessing it was to me to be able to spend that time with him and uh, just immerse myself in his teaching technique and uh, association with him. Uh, it, it was a wonderful blessing to me. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's, it's not like I, I got a, you know, a job title at work or something like that. This, this meant much more to me than that. I, as I said, I had admired him since I was a boy. And, uh, I tell people only half jokingly all the time, you know, when I first met him, I had already been communicating with him, you know, with phone calls and, and, uh, letters, and he was so good at getting back with you. And if someone had told me, Hey, Tom, you know, there's there's going to come a time when you're going to not only you're going to instruct with Jeff Cooper, you're going to teach with him at Gunside. He's going to rank you as a master instructor. You're going to hunt with him in Africa. I, I don't think it ever would have happened. I just I think I would have just killed him with a heart attack you know, <laughs> right there, right there, because it just it meant that much to me. Right. This isn't something that I, I treat lightly. Uh, and when I tell people, you know, I'm one of Jeff Cooper's master instructor, that's intended to honor Jeff Cooper and bring to bring, you know, help other, you know, bring that familiarization to others so that they know who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also to honor his his memory, because, you know, Martin, <clears throat> excuse me, there are many, many, many guys out there teaching right now and, and good guys and, and fine, I'm sure fine instructors and they have no idea that they're standing on the shoulders of Jeff Cooper and Jack Weaver and some of the other early greats like Thel Reed and Jim Plan and Eldon Carl. They don't know who those names are, and it's it's so regrettable because these guys are out there fighting the good – you know, they're fine instructors. Uh, you've got guys out there fighting the good fight, and I mean, seriously, they are they are fighting the forces of darkness. Mm-hmm. And, and dark and dirty places around the world, and they 're walking away from it, victorious, and they are because of the pioneering efforts of jeff cooper
0: right and you know you you kind of brought up a little point just there where you were talking about fighting the dark forces, um, and we know that the evil exists in this world, and you and I have kind of had some conversations about you know, what it means to have the rights to self-defense. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to speak to that.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm always anxious to do that. Uh, and uh, we'll gladly do so. And, and, and uh, in a later podcast, perhaps we can discuss, you know, mindset, which is, you know, combat mindset, which I spend so much time on in my classes. Absolutely. Yeah. The right of self-defense A right is something granted and we hear people talking about a right to education and a right to all these other things and they don't understand the basic concept of a right. A right is something granted to you by a superior authority and it's desperately important that we understand that the right of self-defense, you know, who's the author uh, of that grant, that granted authority? And it isn't man. It isn't the Constitution. The founders would have been appalled at that misunderstanding. The Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights uh, doesn't grant us anything. It's, it serves to restrain or constrain the government, you know, from violating a pre-existent right to bear arms. And it explains why it's for the security of the free state. It's for our our personal liberty. It's essential that we possess the means to defend ourselves, and the government has no right to inhibit that. And that's really what the Constitution is speaking to there. The right comes from God, and there's a great deal of confusion about this, and I myself was very confused about it as a younger man. people misunderstanding certain things that Jesus Christ said. Uh, but the Lord said on the night of his betrayal in Luke twenty-two thirty-six, he directed his disciples to sell their cloaks and buy a sword. And when people first hear that, you'd think it'd be a passage that every good man would be intimately familiar with. But uh, for some reason, and I don't know, uh, we're talking... Speaking of spiritual matters here, perhaps it's Satan's intention that we be oblivious to that passage. But nothing right. to be clearer. There's nothing about the yeah. There's nothing about the passage that is figurative. Uh, he had told them before when I sent you out, I sent you out without cloak or money bag or sandals. And he said, now I tell you, take your cloak and take your money bag, and I say unto you, sell your cloak and buy a sword. There's nothing figurative about it. Uh, shortly thereafter. Yes, we see Peter attempting to use the sword to defend the life of the of Christ to uh, prevent his taking being taken into captivity, but Martin uh, it, it, what Peter was doing there, regardless of the how positive his intentions were, he was actually resisting the will of God. It was the will of God that the son be delivered into the hands of evil men and sacrificed so that those who, you know, to provide a means uh, for anyone to come back to God, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, we're not primarily pursuing a religious discussion here, but that's simply what the Bible teaches. Uh, you know, Peter was in error in that instance because he was using his sword to uh, oppose the will of God. Uh, that has nothing to do with you defending your family. That has nothing to do with a people defending their nation from a foreign invasion, uh, it serves as no pro- prohibition against that whatsoever.
0: Right, no, absolutely. And and he was just, he was feeling his own human feelings, and he was reacting to those instead of what he um, probably knew in his heart of hearts um, that he should be doing at that time. Yes. These rights are granted to us by God then that kind of puts the entire discussion in a whole new perspective for people.
1: Well, it it really does. It it brings into focus this fact that, uh, neither Barack Obama, nor Donald Trump, nor the ATF, uh, the U S Congress or any other individual or institution has the authority to deny you what God has granted you without, They can't deny you that without just cause anymore than they have uh, the moral authority to deny you life, liberty, or happiness, or your property. I mean, they just don't have that authority. It has been granted to them by God. Now, obviously, people can do things, take actions that are uh, immoral, and and thus uh, the rest of us have a responsibility. prevent them from bearing arms or even take their life in the exercise of capital punishment Uh, but that's a different subject that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about uh you know does an institution have the authority to deny an individual or group of individuals a god-given right without just cause and they do not they do not and our founding fathers understood that perfectly it gave uh, impetus to the authorship of the Declaration of Independence and out of concern that a future American government would prove to be despotic. They inserted the bill of rights into the constitution and the second amendment specifically deals with this, this concern. And additionally, here's, here's a quick point I'd like for you to think about. I I would like for your listeners to think about ultimately who has the final say in the course that this nation is to take is it you know the executive branch the legislative branch or the judicial branch and i argue that it's it's none of the above that the founders made it very clear in the second amendment that the ultimate authority lies within the people and the judicial branch can you know, treat the constitution as a living document and the executive branch can, uh, can issue countless executive orders and Congress can freely give up all the authority that uh, was vested in it by the constitution to the executive branch. And they can do all these things that they want to. The founding fathers anticipated this type of uh, usurpation and Inform the American people that ultimately it is up to us to preserve the liberty of this country. And they enshrined that in the Second Amendment.
0: Absolutely. And so on that note, I think I want to say thank you, Tom. I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks for being here with us. And, and just one more time, what was your website?
1: AmericanFireArmsAcademy.com. And if you'd like to reach me personally, uh, my number is 214 912 7455. I love to have you out on the range. I, I live to teach good people good things and look forward to meeting many of your listeners, Martin. Thank you for ha- having me on.
0: Tom, thank you so much. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Martin. head over to facebook.com slash podcast. Look for the learn more button. Click that and it will take you to iTunes where you can listen to and subscribe to our show as well as checking us out on stitcher.com.